Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thanks for tuning in to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook and YouTube as 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 Years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsofvtm.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome everyone back to 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade presents Vampire the Requiem. And today we're going to be speaking about ancient bloodlines. I am your host DJ for today with me, my man, my dude, who's always been with me for a long time since jump, Bob. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> and as you could hear, Big Brother Mike. Mike, say hi to the folks out there. What's good? <laughs> All right, folks. So you have us in for a special treat. Uh, Bob, as you know, is currently waiting his uh, his holy spawn to come into this world. Um, but he did have the opportunity to go ahead and hang out with us here to talk about this book. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying that uh, this is this is a Bloodlines book, as we've already mentioned before. So you're going to get some interesting takes from us, so be prepared. Start this off. Intro story. Um, actually, you know what? I got to think about this. I'm gonna, I got to back this up, because normally we talk about the intro story and it actually means something in this book. So I'm going to kick it off with my thoughts about this. The intro story, to, to put it out there plainly, essentially is five vamps get together. They try resurrecting this ancient vamp that comes back to life. And uh, the reason I'm kind of just going through it very smallly is because it, it, I feel like the story doesn't really go through too much to kind of speak about what this book might or may not get into. So, I don't know. I don't have any real feelings about this. So not real feelings. So let me, let me if I could dig a little. Because yeah. hit me, hit me like, um, like everybody else is hearing it, right? Just to piece this together. I'm not right. saying I disagree with you. But I think what you're saying is that, uh, or trying to say, is that you got the basis of the story, but this book is about just bloodlines throughout exactly. the ages, right? The book separates it by time periods, and they're like, oh, in the time of Egypt, at the time of Babylon, in a world war, here's some bloodlines that were there. But they mm-hmm. don't necessarily tie them all together in any specific format that you had to know about them. Right, this is true. All right, saving grace, though, I will say that they do talk about some of the bloodlines in this original story because they do trace it back to ancient Egypt. So I'll give our listeners that. It does have something in there. I think what's most important about it is it, I think what I took away most out of this uh, story was that it actually does talk about the madness of an elder vampire, an ancient vampire at that point waking up. Because the author, um, the only one that probably survives this ritual summoning, um, does notice that there's no, that there's a surrender. Surrender to an ancient who's waking up trying to gather their thoughts up. And I guess, I guess it rolls into what happens when an ancient wakes up. I see that look, Bob. Yeah, we're we're back to this whole ancient vampire madness, right? Let's step off the vampire friends. Tell me about a requiem ghoul again. What's what's the benefit to being a ghoul in requiem? What, what do they forever? Get? You get to live forever. Okay. Um, do they get a lot of derangements for living forever and slowly go insane and drool in a cup? I would hope not. I mean, <laughs> depends on who's dominant, but no, I don't well, think so. Neither do I, and I fundamentally find that kind of fucked up. Because let's explain it. If somebody is alive, though immortal, like Highlander the Gathering, they could be around. Right? They're just they just get skilled. 
They're just these super skilled people. For if I was Mumtar, if I, if I'm Bob Hotep, <laughs> right from the Pharisees back in the day, and this is before Cle- Cleopatra, I changed her diapers, right? And Bob Hotep was around. And when they went and did my family in and put them all in a mummified tomb and put them off to the side, my ass was sitting there going, man, that's kind of fucked up. Well, as the centuries went by, I learned to get over it, watched the British Empire do what it did. World world empires crumbled and they came and they went. Rome did its thing. I saw all that. I've been through all of it. And I'm not drilling in a cup. Instead, I perfected skills. Think about it. I, perf- I, I know what religion is. In fact, I did my share of trying to be the muckiest of the mucky muck in the, in the world religion at the time. I tried being a slave owner. I was a slave for a time. Why? I got bored being the richest guy ever, right? I had all that going on. So I tried to be the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. And now we're in the modern and I'm sitting here and here's this tomb of the vampire who's been ghouling me this whole time. And he and I had this agreement. Every time he wakes up, I hand him a diary and it's updated and everything's crisp and clean. I remind him of who he is. And I sit there and it feels like I'm taking care of a, of a, of a child on the spectrum. <laughs> Think about it. Who am I? I've awoken again. Everything's confusing. Ah, master, please let me remind you who you are. See, I, this time I have the coloring book. It's intact. I've improved. <laughs> this is you. I am... Before huts? That's correct. You were in some weird cave system you described to me. I never found it. But you said it was real. That was back in the day. Now now, now this picture's interesting. Is that you kissing me? Yes, master, it is. Actually, we're lovers. And and by the way, that part's a lie. Because what stops me from telling him that? Right. You're, you're, right nothing. Your undying loyalty to your uh, to your unliving regnant, of course. You, you ah, must tell him but the we're truth. forgetting. <laughs> but we're forgetting obsession, and we're forgetting love, and we're yes. forgetting yes. that I want this mm-hmm. person more than anything. And before I was treated like shit, or maybe I was treated well. But as the blood gets more in me, and I'm infused in immortality through the ages, and if I spend one day without basking in his presence. Man, how many times have I thought about killing myself? But he's always brought me back from the brink because of his existence. And that's been everything. Okay. So if a hyper-obsessive crazy ghoul, we're okay saying that because they're a human, they can live forever and not suffer this weird derangement delusion. Why is it that an undead vampire who doesn't have the chemical imbalance that an immortal should have developed over, you know, since forever... Okay, they don't get it, but you do. Now, who's really in power? And what game do I really want to play now? I think it fundamentally undermines Requiem to sit here and go, the fog of ages makes it good, but the ghouls are okay. Really? Like, what are you pushing? You're really, here's what they're saying. Do a prelude. (laughs) You don't understand immortality, but we watched Highlander the series, and I keep coming back to it, not because I don't like Highlander the series. I think Highlander the series and the movie, they're really good. And showing you that there's all this cool stuff that happened before the modern. That makes make sense why I'm going to go and chop a guy's head off in a parking garage. Because this Kurgan guy's been after me since the Reconquista. And I've had no choice. And there can be only one. And there's all this purpose. Okay, that's great for them in the show. But now, why don't we do that with all vampires? And they should have that. Well, how do we do that? Because vampires can't go in the day. And that's a very different lifestyle change. Because it's very boring being in the medieval times just at night how many how many a, a farm isn't fun anymore right when it's <laughs> it's nighttime and we're hanging out okay the cows are asleep the horses are in the barn they're asleep There's chickens the are pissed 
right? You get what I'm saying. Like, it's a different right, feel. Right, right. It's less romantic. It starts being a comedy at a point. But they're trying to romanticize and keep the focus and everything else, and that's what you got to do. So strangely, we came up with this idea that we don't have to tell a story about history at all. If we make it to where you could play an ancient vampire, just cut out the part that you have to be responsible for knowing what you did in history. Just completely eliminate it or make it up as you go because it could be fake anyway. Yeah. How? Yeah. How, how? Is it? So, I don't disagree with you. Purely in the interest of playing devil's advocate, right? With all of the people we know who kind of get hung up trying to make their backgrounds more complicated than they need to be, isn't it, a, isn't it at least worth exploring the possibility that you could, like, replace that need to be thorough, or at least to know okay. when to stop yourself, with a role-play opportunity for bullshit from the ghoul to the regnant, or bullshit from some organization that wants to explain your memory? It, I, I think I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Do. I do. You want to. I don't. Because we're going to play a game show. Game show time. Complicated or lazy? Which one is it? What excuse do you want to throw out for the reason why you want to have badass superpowers that you didn't earn? Because some storyteller said heroically, I want to play in the Egyptian times up to the modern. I want to play that chronicle. And man, I wish there were some bloodlines that had it. And then suddenly, someone goes, ancient bloodlines. It's right here. They got Egyptian bloodlines here, and they got an idea how to do it. Oh, does it right. give me some insight into like what Egypt was like back then and how it was structured in Requiem's eyes and everything else? Nope. <laughs> what, what do you mean, no? Not just list like three bloodlines and we're done. Okay, well, do those bloodlines tell a story? Well, yeah, but you can't really know if it's true or not because of the fog of ages and who knows what's what. I mean, in a book it says it's that, but really, there's all this other stuff that was written before that you don't know? Okay, well, can I count on you as an ST then to, like, can we agree that if you're around since Egypt, that we're going to play a series of snippets as we jump forward, that you're going you're gonna to make the story of your history? Like, what have you done at this point? You're going to start at base level. But by the time we get to 1999, I at least want you to have a pretty good library of your exploits and what it meant to you to go through those story snippets where we, we actually ran game. And you're thinking to yourself, duh. Right? And that's great if we start the game back in ancient times and we're playing the game as we take notes. In other words, we make the diary mm -hmm. of what we did as PCs. Mm -hmm. That's easy mode. That's not what this book is saying. No. This book is different because... This is probably the first book that we see that is definitely a companion piece. In a vacuum, it's exactly as Bob had mentioned. It's like, we take a look at these bloodlines, and they're like, what relevance do they have? There's a small snippet between each bloodline in terms of era that's presented. But all that was presented in Ancient Mysteries. So now I have to get the Ancient Mysteries book to tie into my Ancient Bloodlines book, uh, almost as if both books should have been one. They but I was having been. fun with that. And I... I apologize, DJ. I'm having fun with it. We co-host a riff in here, but we're also right. pointing out something. I said complicated or lazy. I know it's complicated. It's work to play an elder. It's work. It and yep. do you agree or disagree that if I sit down and have your trust as an ST, you're, I'm, a, I'm your player and you're an ST, do you think you're justified in saying, okay, you the player, if we're playing in a modern chronicle and you want to play somebody that old, and it doesn't matter how old, it could be 200 years, right? It could be 100 years. 
Is it fair to say that you want me to put down the major events that impacted me as a character so that you, the ST, have a time of understanding between the two? Because it's co-ST, really. Right. I'm a player, but you stake a plain elder, and i got to write, like, did I stake my sire? Were we involved in a vampiric uh, um, dystopian kind of group that, that stabbed the shit out of each other for power? Were you tyrannical? Was my sire tyrannical? Was I a villain? But then, since immortality makes everybody cycle through the roles, so I may have started a hero, but I'm a villain at some point, and I cycle back to being a good guy again. Did I learn from my lessons? Do I enjoy being a villain? Am I a hedonist? All that should be in my elder's background. Kind of coming up to a point, because it's not about what all what's all the great stuff you accomplished up to this point. It should be I'm playing an elder, and I have a reason to play an elder, and I have a goal and ambitions I wish to accomplish still. There's still something for there's a reason for me to play this character, but mm-hmm. for it to make sense in my mentality, how I am, and why I have all the things, and I have all the power I have, don't you think it's fair for that um, ST to give that, uh, what am I thinking, privilege to you to be able to portray these things? that my responsibility is to come correct and have some of this mapped out to help them understand where I'm from so they can we can agree that this is the type of cat I'm playing. Yeah, I I I mean hmm. That I feel like that is in the category of the way things should be. Should be. <laughs> uh-huh. But I do feel like this book is trying to give you capacity to not necessarily be what you should be. And I, I don't, what they're I don't not know if that's a good you. thing. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Here's what they're not telling you. For every player that said, nah, fuck it. I want power. I don't care to write all that out. You're the ST. I want to play this ancient Egyptian badass that just sacrifices babies to my name. And then I have this badass harem and I have all this, in other words, super ultra edgelord hip, badass power fantasy is what I want to play. And then this says that you can do that because it doesn't matter what your background is. Now, the relief to the ST is I don't have to care what your background is. I really don't. Because you can say whatever it is, and you don't know if it's true or false, and I can make that up as I go. That's the real between the lines that this book is telling you. And here's the do what you will. However... Why the hell would I let a player play an elder? Why am I going to... We talk about this very little. What about the ST's joy? Mm. What about the mm. ST's fun? Preach. Do you think... I know I won't find it fucking fun to have somebody sit down and basically take advantage of my time to shit all over my creativity because they want to run around like they're Cal L on Earth with mm. fangs. That's what they really want to do with no responsibility. And if you think about Superman... All you had to know is that he was Superman. And he's basically, Superman's built, holy shit, like this book. Think about it. You were raised as a baby back here in the woods of Kansas. There you are. And we don't know where you're from. Well, we found you as an orphan and you have superpowers now. We think you're from an alien planet and it's gone. I don't know where I'm from, but I'm going to defend this earth. America. That's it. That's all Superman ever has to know or love or enjoy. And then later on, the ST's like, well, it's kind of boring. You're flying around saving nuclear strikes and defending Earth, and you're bringing world peace, but we really don't want to do that because we got to give villains to you that can actually challenge you at your level. So we keep up in the bar. And the rest of your friends tried to play with you, but they're the freaking Justice League, and who cares? Like Aquaman came on the scene, and poor DJ, you're like, you don't even give a shit about the fact that the dolphins are becoming extinct or that the sharks are deciding to get more menacing for some reason. 
You don't care at all. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to ruin this parade. I'm Superman. I just land in the water, kill all the sharks, and, you know, we're done. Or really, I'll just go back to my Fortress of Solitude, where for whatever reason, I have a background of 50. <laughs> I could just make a solution that, that makes the dolphin sentient. I don't want to do that because it's an abuse of power. I've cured cancer and every other disease in the world, but I can't give it to mankind because it's just kind of abusing my power. I don't really want to do that, but I did it anyway. Meanwhile, Wonder Woman's sitting there going, could you make women equal? <laughs> could you hurry up and do that? Why would I do that? I'm a Superman, right? So da 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 da. What's my point? Now just transition that uh, that skin of them being superheroes in DC to being an elder game of your choice. It's basically the same thing. Someone's super ultra powered, and even if there's some people who are similarly powered but in different way, a different way being they put more effort in their background and they're leaving you know opening for someone to have more say and all that other shit. That's what I'm saying. There's a right way to do it, and there is a wrong way to do it. And there are companies who routinely keep saying, we remove our hands from the responsibility of directing you in that direction. Do with this information what you will. But the point of us is that we get a hold of a book like this that's basically an excuse for someone to say, yeah, I want to play an Elder game. I want to do that. But this book doesn't say I have to make a super background. It just says I get cool powers. And since it's an Elder game, naturally, you're going to give us a whole bunch of extra stuff to use it with. Right, DJ? Otherwise, it's boring. Right, DJ? <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> so definitely get bored. So I, I don't, I did not get the impression. And if, for what it's worth, if I'm STing a, a game and I'm allowing this book, I certainly would not presuppose that just because I let somebody play one of these bloodlines, they get to also be an elder, right? And there's one or two of them uh, that are written as if you kind of have to start from ground zero. Um, with that being said, no, I, I totally agree with you. I, you, you kind of have to be um, more strict if you give a player access to something like this because it'll get silly real fast. I got, I got no dispute with that uh, assertion. It's and all funny. I did, I'm not, I'm not saying I wanted to slice into this to hit you in the chops, Mike. About that, it's I came with you on the <laughs> comment you made to go. Wait a second, Jack. I bring up the ghoul thing, and you're pitching this. Let's talk about the problem with elders. Yeah, and we'll leave yeah. it at that. Yeah. Right. But when you look at ancient bloodlines, this book doesn't address that. They did that in a previous book of Chronicles and Ages and Tips and Tricks. Mm -hmm. And they ran out of time to put it in that book. Mm -hmm. Right? Which is what all this book is, is those bloodlines. So, um, not to steal DJ's thunder, but I'm just kind of trying to give back the discussion here. Uh, to get off of me and Mike's little quick tete-a-tete uh, to, uh, to these mystical bloodlines that don't have to be elders but are ancient bloodlines. Right, but then I guess that you know leads us into actually going over it, right? Because we, we picked a couple of bloodlines, and I could tell you the bloodline I picked was not what I thought it was going to be, which I guess will lead into something else, but Mike actually touched upon it, right? If we're looking at this bloodlines book, why is it even interesting? What bloodline would you choose out of it, or why do you even think it's... It draws your attention. Mike, you, you started off with one that I thought was pretty cool, saying like you don't have to start from Elder. You have to start from scratch. What gave that impression, and which one did you choose? Um, So I wasn't talking about one of the ones I chose. Now, I can I can talk about that one if you want me to. There's a separate uh. one that I chose that is badass for a different reason. Which one you want me to go with? I can do both, too. What, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> what do you feel inside? Okay. So inside, I want to talk about the one that I chose for me because I like it. Let's go for it then. <laughs> All right. So there's this this uh, particular bloodline in this book called the Myrat. Um and their story comes out of a myth. Um, it's 
it's super it's campy on the level of like a Shaw Brothers movie. Um, but it was super front fun to read for me. I would have wanted to see can we the pause a second. Can, yeah. can can I ask you to back up a little bit? What yeah. era is it from? So we have an idea. Uh, I want to say it's like the 1200s. It's the first kingdom of Thailand. It's after the, it is after the people we call Thai now take over from the Khmer. I think the, the, the so in the book, it's what section, what section is that in this book? Um, what's the title? It is bloodlines of the first kingdom of Thailand. Literally. Okay, cool. Just making sure. All right. I'm with you. Um, but actually I'm almost with you. Just what I'm doing on purpose is what I know other people are screaming. Okay. What is First Kingdom, but like, what what is Thailand vampires like? Do they give an idea of what they're like in general? They, um, they do. Kind of. They don't give you a lot about what was going on in this time period other than the two bloodlines they describe. Right? You don't get a whole lot of what the um, night society is like in that time period in this place. The This chapter or this section focuses narrowly on uh the bird people and the snake people which i say because i don't remember their their actual names but it's literally um these folks who venerate the old ways and these uh children and and followers of this snake king who was once super evil tyrant you know sacrificing people horrible injustices blah 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 and then he converts he converts to buddhism and brings all his followers with him and no bullshit it results in a dance off, right? They have this traditional dance that they do for like the candles or whatever. Um, and that turns into a fight. And then you get these two bloodlines that are in this section who uh, they have like this non-interference pack. And the, uh, the bloodline that I focused on was the, the snake man's bloodline. <laughs> and all of their lifestyle is, it's like a mix between um, Buddhism and the Ordo Dracul's attempt to overcome the vampiric state, um, supposedly because they all want to give their karma back to this original Dragon King, right? Because his first best student is Dragon King, Snake King, whatever. Um, his first best student immediately starts to see results from the teachings, and he's improving himself, he's feeling better, and getting close to Nirvana, and blah blah blah. But the king. Despite the fact that he's taught all of these people and despite the fact that he's following all of the dictates, he's not getting any benefits from it. So the whole bloodline is monastic vampires who are trying to give him their karma so he can finally reap the benefits of his own conversion. Um, and it, you know, it sung to me. I liked it. It was very, it felt romantic. Like, I need to read that book. So uh, the, the, the dance-off thing, I, I remember glancing at this. And why I say glancing at this, because that's when my, when I read, if something grips, like anybody else, when you read a good book, the parts that grip you the best, you remember the best, right? But then there's a lot that you just sort of give up to like, I don't want to, I don't want to keep that in my head. I don't really care what the color of the house was or that Stacy has a problem with Brad. The book's about possession. I know the little kid's going to do something crazy in a minute. So I just want to see if I can see where that's happening, right? That's the part I focused on. I use that analogy to describe like when I read that, I started getting there. There's a there's a comic I recently uh, no there's a show on Netflix that wasn't a comic it's a a Netflix that talks about sort of a an idea of uh, Korean supernatural events mm-hmm. and um, it's a it's a woman who is a young woman who inherits the responsibility of keeping the peace between supernaturals 
And it's, uh, I forget the name of it, but basically it sounds like this. Like there was an event where two sides and two families of supernaturals agreed to behave a certain way and a tentative truce, which obviously is a great story and a hotbed for a lot of dramatic things to happen to make it interesting to see. And, and that's where I resonated with it. The dance off is where they lost me. <laughs> right. That's, that's where they lost me where I was like, okay, all right, we're, we're over here. I'm just gonna, that, that's not for me, but, uh, I do get why the draw was there though, too, because it was very unique. Rather, just just saying, commentary wise, I was like, yeah, it's oh, there. And for what it's worth, right? I didn't totally um, betray my Cambro uh, instincts because they got a badass power. Of course not. It doesn't have levels. It's just cool. Makes it real hard to hurt. Uh huh. Read the book. Find out. It's good stuff. Uh-huh. So so why am I gonna read the book, Mike? I have you in a podcast. So um that's my way of like, wait a second, deflect, block, counter. Um tell me why it's so awesome. Like it's vampires in Requiem. What's this badass power they get? Um so you know how you you already have resilience, right? That'll let you just uh-huh. take take some damage on the chin that other people can't take. Um these guys just get extra. Hold on, let me see. I might have a note on this. I took I took copious notes. Um, oh, I don't need exact. I'm just saying. What does it say? Right. That's what I'm saying. Because people are looking for a story. A lot of people who listen to this don't even know the mechanics. Okay. Right. So, but they can understand a story. So, if resilience is the supernatural, like all vampires can take a hell of a lot of damage before they die, an obscene amount, way more than any mm-hmm. mortal could. And it's damn hard to kill them without their specific bangs. We understand that. Yep. And then there's vampires who have a thing called resilience. And this makes it to where they could take even more. Compared to your average undead, those with resilience are like, you know, just like vampires that are mortals. These resilience vampires are that way to normal vampires. They could take that and end some. They're just not going anywhere with your traditional bullshit. However, now you're telling me there's this other power that does something even more wacky. And I, I wish to be entertained. <laughs> All right. Okay. So they have their version of haha can't touch me is the dots in this power literally subtract from your opponent's ability to harm you at all. Like they they directly subtract from the dice pool. So it's not like you're soaking damage. It's just like having this power means that people are less able to harm you. And Diane, it's demonstrated in that dance battle scene. Right, because the bird lady gets real mad. She's coming after the snake man because he said something disrespectful that he shouldn't have said, and she's trying to call him, and it's just not working. Right, it's that scene in the kung fu movie where Sifu is like, "Haha, nope, fuck off," just batting your hands away or dodging, making you look silly. Um, and that is the that's the vibe, that's the flavor. Supposedly, it comes from some Earth deity. So, if it comes from an Earth deity, this sounds like something that would be harder skin or diamond-like properties, or any of that? Or is it not that at all? Not that at all. What you're describing, what you're describing is skill. Right. Like, you say snake, and I'm saying supernatural dexterity, able to read your opponent's um, mm. choreography. Right? They're able to read their movement, and therefore they can't touch you, and the better you get at the power, which is how I was reading it. That, I mean, would you say that's, that's what it is? I, that is certainly what the flavor reads like. When they describe it working, that is exactly what it is. I don't know why they also said they have to invoke this this deity or spirit of Earth. Like, some of them literally point to the ground when they're using the power, I assume, as a taunt, right? Like in, a, like in Tekken. 
Um, I, I don't know what the connection is supposed to be there. I assume it's something religious. So if I told you that the the properties are, are it is something religious, but the properties, especially in a lot of, uh, I'm not quoting an expert, but in most of the Eastern reading, especially when we did Kindred of the East and mm-hmm. books of that nature, even comics, books, movies, they all ascribe that the properties of the elements do some pretty amazing things. And the earth does make sense. For instance, there is a, there's martial arts techniques. I, I think one's called like Makawara. I could be wrong. I remember reading that a long time, a long time ago. But it made me fascinated with the aspects of different things of Kung Fu's and styles, where once you are grounded to the floor, nobody can remove you from it. Right? You're bound to the earth. And it's not about taking damage as much as it is that your stance can't be broken. But that's while your feet are to the earth. Like you have a relationship with the earth. And anything that moves on it is bound to the power of the earth. Think about it. Gravity, earth, this makes sense if you really look at it. Nothing that happens on the earth can ever not be under the earth's power. But that's quite literal. If it's in the sky, that's different. Hmm. Right? That's a whole new domain. And that's where it is. And that's how I took it when I read it, that it ties to that aspect of understanding and getting that relationship with the earth itself is why that happens. So all the great dancers and fighters, they have to have a healthy representation of gravity and the earth to be able to be good at what they do. I dig it. Works for me. But, um, as Mike is now enlightened, but all he keeps on thinking about is kickboxer one. (laughs) (laughs) Don't judge me. I I am a man of a type, (laughs) but uh, I can't be the only one. I know you guys, I know both of you liked at least one of these bloodlines. I did. I guess I'll go first. So, this is where I tricked myself into liking the bloodline, or rather, right, right, reading into this. So, we chose this, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to choose this because of a story that I read in Ancient Bloodlines. Um, or rather, I'm sorry, Mysteries. And the bloodline that I chose is known as the Sta'au. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. S-T-A-A-U. I'm going to call it Sta'au. Um, however, this is a bloodline that took place during the segment known as the Montrose Party, which is somewhere between, like, 1839 and 1869. But to put it in context, this is like the Oregon Trail of sorts, right? Because the story that was being told in the previous book is about a group uh, led by the Spontros, who happened to be kindred, um, taking their herd, which in this case is not cattle, unless you consider humans cattle, across to the West for opportunity. During that period in time, they encountered something on the road, or rather I should say something out in the desert, um, which tried to scare them away. Uh, Three times did they get warned, hey, you don't want to come here, you know, originally because they saw a guy in, in a in a British outfit show up all types of disheveled. They're like, dude, stay away. You go any further, you're going to wander into the land of worms, and that's not what you want. And that happened two more times until they were like, yeah, well, whatever. We don't have to worry about it. We're also surrounded with werewolves, so we should be pretty cool. Let's go ahead and continue going forward. And then the story ends like any good horror story does, with you not really finding out what happens outside of the fact that there was a massacre, and maybe there was two survivors left. So this actually talks about that bloodline or these creatures or these wicked ones that had apparently caused this massacre. So apparently the story goes in a very short way that there was these two criminals. They weren't exactly brothers of sorts uh, and where they might have been, but there were two folks that were with each other. And it seems like they were of the people. One of them was from the, if I'm not pronouncing it incorrectly, Tunaxa people, and the other one was a Tunaha. Because they were wicked, their fates were already sealed. They were already exiled to the Badlands as it was. And because they couldn't return back over to their lands, um, they were about to starve and die. Lo and behold, they stumbled across what they considered the true Badlands, 
and upon the cusp of death, ghosts and all types of wicked show up and go, hey, this ain't the end for you because we still have more in store. And they're like, for reallys? For reallys. <laughs> and lo and behold, this is the beginning of the style of bloodline. And what they believe in is essentially that they are destined to find enlightenment, right? And find enlightenment because they've recognized that since ghosts have chosen them and they were already wicked to begin with, and they already knew from their, you know, from their people, from their culture, that there was no coming back, that once you've gone that far, you can't turn back to the side of light. They figure, what if we just turn the car in reverse and say, fuck it, and just keep driving through? Because if we're that wicked and we exist in this state, then surely we must be able to get through to where we have to, to reach the sandhills. What is the Sandhills? The Sandhills is a belief uh, by the Blackfoot Indians, rather our natives here, that it's their heaven. It's their version of Golconda. That being the case, these people could only inhabit this certain blighted land they call the Land of Worms. They try to explain the Land of Worms being this location where nothing grows, that where humans end up showing up, all food turns to ash in their mouth, but even though it turns into ash, they don't get hungry. They might get like upset, disheveled, you know, disturbed by the fact that they're not getting hungry, but it does exist. And these vampires live on that land. But wait a second. So what parent clan did they belong to? They don't say. Apparently anyone could join it. And the reason why anyone could join it is because people keep wandering into their trap. Now, to be fair, even though they don't think of themselves as monstrous and they know they have to be wicked to find this crossing over into their own version of Golconda, they're not without scruples. They give you the opportunity to turn back. You don't have to go their way. But if you don't heed their warning the third time, then you're only inviting yourself to get bestowed upon all types of cruelties in which they do inflict. At which point, lo and behold, welcome to attempting to be one of these folks. What makes it weird for me, though, is they start talking about how they start fighting their teeth, you know, start getting a little bit of the sharpenings in there. They will the blood to make sure they keep the sharpening on there, right? Sounds something familiar. They, uh, they have a whole bunch of skulls and bones. They eat a lot on their property. This sounds like an old bloodline i've heard of in a different type of game <laughs> and uh and uh their weakness essentially on their end on top of the weakness they already carried from their parent clan is that they can never gain humanity back it's just going all the way straight down so you're you're playing a game where you know that um the eventual descent will either lead you into your own version of Golconda or a loss of character um but that's the bloodline i chose and i and this is where I say, I got suckered in because I like the story going like, man, oh man, I wonder what took them. And then when you read it, it's not that it's bad, but it's just expected a little bit more. Um, it kind of, and just offhand, because what they, they do do is that they, because they're so ghost-like and they travel across the land of the worms, which essentially is the land where the living and the dead can have a very thin veil to a certain degree, mm. all their abilities are based off of ghost stuff. They could turn into a mist or turn into a ghost for at least an hour. Um, they could have weapons attempt to harm them, but it's like their body discorporates for just the briefest moment. And I think the last devotion that they have essentially is being able to see things in the twilight. But that's like, that's the, the big and sum of it. It kind of reminded me at the Nagaraja in the beginning, we're talking about ghosts being able to yeah, harm them and or eat stuff, right? I will say that I do like their story better because it grounds them a little bit more, and I'm kind of stuck between that bone tomahawk thing, for those of you who have seen that Western horror movie. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, Right? That's what I was thinking about, but that's, First, that's kind of what drew me in. I would never let a player play that, because I don't see the joy in it, but they are fantastic antagonists. Right. You know, or or if if you didn't tell a player that this is their bloodline. Yes. And had them slowly go through it is where I, is where I saw it immediately. Why say a player can't, because you're almost telling them when they read it, 
they're going to feel dark and they're going to automatically go there and they're going to make whatever they have come out of it. Or they're mm-hmm. going to be tragic and try to, you know, outrun the sun. And that aspect, which I guess you could say is a goal, but how can you do that if these guys have to – there's things you got to do, right? <laughs> and that's uh, that, that's that's where it's at. And uh, I don't know. That's, that's tough. That's tough. But I also want to say this. This book doesn't say this is what players should play. It says here are more bl- – I think I think we should get that all off the – I give enough shit to Requiem uh, to, to like it and, of course, to still black in the eye. Uh, because I don't think anything's perfect. And I think that's the problem. There's a lot of non-guidance on the bloodlines that they create. They're just sort of like, here's more options. Here's more options. We were sitting back in the in the in the in the bar. We all got tanked, came back with all these ideas and wrote them up, and here's another book you can pay us for. Is that's kind of you know, great format. It comes out fine. There's good reason and sound judgment behind it and, and balance, but at the same time, it's like it's it's so hard when you have so many choices of what to play. That when you see them, you need guidance as to, we think this would be best served as, if you're a storyteller, blah. If you're a player, blah. You know, that's that's where that stuff sings. So I'll do that there and say that. Um, that's exactly where I, where I find that line. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, so we saw how people reacted when they were told that the Sabbat are only antagonists, right? More recently with V5. No, notice it, I said guidance, lawyer. I said guidance. I didn't say you must. I said guidance. I'm just saying, it's, I, I hear you, and I think they anticipated something like that with this text. Like, hey, no, we're no, going to give people no, stuff to do and not no. tell them what to do with it. I, I don't. Arm lock, Mike. Arm lock. The counter, arm lock. I, don't, <laughs> I, 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 I do not think that was a bone in their head. <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't think that was the case either, because I do think that the intent is at one point or another to... Obviously, they put it in there. They gave you stats, so at one point or another, your players are going to want to play it. Because the storytellers, for the most part, we have that toolkit as well. You know, they tell you you could... The weird part is, like, you're right, Bob, because they tell you that you could or couldn't play it. But if you do, what's... How could you prescribe to playing these ancient bloodlines? And I think, you know, as I was reading it, and as I'm going through all the other bloodlines, because there's 20 of the bloodlines in this book, folks, what relevance does it have, like... I, I could say in this case, these guys would have never made it out. Unless, unless they're only in the Badlands, and that's it, right? The boogeyman. If I'm thinking that, what if at the end of Bone Tomahawk, for those who haven't seen it, let's just say it ends pretty gruesomely, but it, it gives you a little bit of gray, but a little bit of hope at the end. The gray, of course, being are, do these monsters live at the end, right? Let's go with, if these monsters did live at the end, right? Considering this was in the 18, late 1800s. And you have a coterie of vampires who are nomads, right? Because that was the first book that ever came out for Requiem as a source book. And they're like, oh, man, we're Carthians. We just went ahead and blew through. We're going to drive through Arizona. Where are we heading to next? Let's go to Los Angeles, bro. All right. Who's a kegger? And start driving through and you come across this. This makes an awesome horror story because these yep. folks don't play around. And that's where I see this bloodline. That's where I see the value to having even bloodlines exist within specific ages. Uh, because you don't know what the permutations of the blood is. If anything at all, I think even just having bloodlines in general reinforces in Requiem. You don't know what the blood can do. And out of the five base clans, the four clans that exist because they're the most numerous, all it takes is circumstance, time and circumstance for something to change. And this is that change. And what makes it crazier is there is no parent bloodline, and it's all tied to the land. So what are these things if they're not vampires, but they're vampires in this book? Kind of get what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good point. Very good point. Uh, so I guess 
No, no, go ahead. You, you beat me to it. I, I, I guess feeling, uh, feeling the the onus here and kind of, kind of having fun with it. I chose the Babylonian era section. I'll tell you exactly why. I said to myself as I'm going through here, um, reading them all, I'm going, you know what? We're going to pick this because it's going to be the hardest one. It's the hardest pitch. It's the hardest to understand and grip your mind around. Historians have a hard time figuring out what Babylon was like. We have more religious references to what that place was like than anything else. And we're going off the commentary from people who saw it rise and fall. And what I mean by historians, like they could tell you how big it was and the kingdom they had and the empire they had and whatnot. But that's not the interesting stories. The interesting stories is the fact that reduced to salt, we used the gates of Ishtar and all this other shit and hedonism abound and how crazy it must have been. And uh, child sacrifice, you know, there's all sorts of like shit that just kind of thrown out about it in the real. So it almost makes it laughable that we even care about vampires in that time. And yet they were there. And as they described the Babylonian vampire, if uh, as they put it, if there's one that could remember, and there isn't, but if there was one that could, they would describe a golden era where magic was abound. And you could pull demons as much as sand from the desert with ease if you were a vampire. That it was just a dark time, magical time. There's no such thing as morality. This is before right and wrong. All there was was instinct and whim. That's what you had. Now, they also give you an insight into what their night society was like, and it's vastly different than anything you know now. For instance, Diablery was an open punishment that could be done politically to showcase the power of the person doing it. So I am I am Baboon Rotten Bob, right? <laughs> and I bring out Mike. Because, Mike, how dare he speak out wrong at the whatever-the-hell party that I had a problem with him being at. And Mike is weaker than me. But all of Night Society comes out and goes, well, you're the strong, Bob. You must diab him now, of course. And so Mike's laid out, and I commence this great ritual, and it has to be a big showing in public. And I diabolize Mike and gain his power. Well, now, why everybody condones it is because they know it's a matter of time before I succumb to mutual diabolies and I'm out of the way. And so the immortals wait for me to do this enough to push me out of the way. It's a way of handling a problem, the long game. And that's what they do, which which opens your mind to a society that was built on patience. They knew what was mm. going on. Patience and brutality is a frightening thing. And that's, that's the most brutal thing I could think of to do is to devour someone's soul. And they made it an escapade. It wasn't just like the way they make it seem there might have been a night long of dancing and, and people coming up and painting their own blood in the victim and leaving gifts of goodbye. And they knew they're and Mike's terrified the whole time and he's trying to beg and he's screaming and at points frenzying, but that only enhances the meal and all, everyone around the vampires are enjoying this and kind of pointing it out. And I start dismembering him, right? You can help me. And I start handing out his limbs to people so they could sup and enjoy him and enjoy his flesh. And they honor his existence. However many centuries he's been around up to this point, because they also point that out too. It's vampiric rivals of worth. Just because I'm more powerful doesn't mean Mike wasn't powerful. It just simply means I was more so. And so now I'm doing away with him. And so this is permitted. And that's how it went on. Kind of a brutal dark time. But then I'm thinking to myself, okay, there's two bloodlines in here that they mentioned, one and two. And and one's like ancient assassins, which honestly, I won't bore you with it. If I say (laughs) ancient assassin vampires from back in the day, you're going to be like, okay, so what? Like somehow poison now affects vampires through the blood? (laughs) Wait a minute. 
why would poison affect a dead guy? And I go, uh-huh. and you're like, oh, well, I can't really get behind that. Well, what if I told you it was done through psychic vampirism? Because they're bitter, hateful, and angry people who, who, who just distill jealousy and inner rage, and they suck it all on the inside. They're able to distill this through the blood to make poison power to affect other vampires, and that's what they do. That's the poison, the poison of the soul. None have resistance to that. Okay, fine. Maybe you're not convinced. All right. What if I told you that because it's Babylonian vampires, there's another one, and they decide that, well, all right, we're going to be ultra-powerful. We're a bloodline because all we want is power. That's what we seek beyond anything else. The purpose of our existence is power itself, and we put it in print. So that makes us unique because we all fight for kingship in Babylon, especially this bloodline, which is derived from Deva. And you think to yourself, okay, so in three lines, I know the whole bloodline. I get it. But wait, there's unique powers. Of course there is. All of Requiem had that gimmick. You tell a story, and then here's some unique powers you don't see anywhere else, and that's the hook. And we get that, except by now, it's kind of tiresome. It's like, you know, I get the unique power, but you kind of lose that when your momentum is so contrived. And that's what it seems. Like, you're giving a little bit, but it's not different enough, and it's not threshed out. But then I said to myself, but remember... In these bloodlines, they tell a story. That's why I asked you both. Like, in the time period, does it paint a mm-hmm. picture of what it was like? And yeah, it actually does that. Right? For, for Babylon, definitely points out it means that all vampires are bastards. Babylon sucked. It should have been reduced to salt, and I hope it happens again. Right? <laughs> Just get rid of it. Like, these guys suck. They're the worst people possible. Black-hearted magicians and evil... Cor- and these are the assholes that survived. That's the part that got me the most, right? Not beautiful Ishtar in the act of love, the goddess of love and fertility that brought about healing and, and, and making sure babies lived and brought that around. And Not the cool ones. No, they're fucking done. These are the assholes, because assholes live forever. That's, that's kind of how the goal goes. Mm-hmm. Well, especially the Edema, which is the bloodline I chose. The Edema are actually the reason that Babylon is gone. That floored me. Because you read one and two and you're like, okay, these guys must be the one that are experts in gardens. Because <laughs> the hanging gardens of Ishtar, right? So this must have been the, you know, the hedge trimmer from hell or something <laughs> like that. No. What the Edemu are is that uh, because the vampires had a point of, um, we'll call it excess, and they were at the height of power, they all sat around and saw that there is no way this ends. There's always going to be one person more powerful than everyone else since the most eldest amongst us, and they're holding the cards. They won't tell us how they got as powerful they are. How powerful was this eldest? Well, they can commit the Aubrey with no side effect. That they is- have done a shit ton of the Aubrey and gained a lot of power, and they do it, and there's no remorse, there's no issue, there's no nothing but the gaining of power and distilling their blood. Also, Torpor, they didn't have to experience. So how did they have that? Well, apparently, the farther back you get with the first original vampires or where we're at, we got to be at that level when we're talking about this guy. That's some raw power. No torpor, no worry, no nothing. What was, what were they? They don't know. Nobody knew, but they knew this much. We were fucking done with them. So they get together and they create this curse. Because we could pull demons from the desert, we could figure it out. A couple of them get the idea. Let's do that. Let's, let's make something that can get back at him the next Diabra he does. 
So they do. They do this right, where they pull a vampire that they knew was going to be, they actually trumped up and and, and just <laughs> socially, di- diplomatically screwed this guy over to be the yeah. prime target for this ancient to devour, to add to their power. And when they set him up, they told him, hey, we know you're screwed, and you're going to go down, but we give you an idea for revenge if you let us. And more or less, it's like thumbs up. That's at least how I think it happened. They don't go into much detail other than they have this guy. But to me, a dude that powerful, you couldn't let him know what you were doing. So there must be a gimmick. That's my hook and gimmick. And uh, so, by the way, don't worry. That's for free. But anyway. So they do. Um, so they, they do Cleto'd him. They, they, they were like, listen, you get your one chance against the hard corner and just bite really hard on the tooth. Had to have, because what they do right. is they get this guy pinned down and part of the right that they describe that you got to do to create the original demo, they had to invoke these seven spirits. Seven spirits were invoked from the land. And by the way, when they say spirits, they didn't fucking know what spirit they were invoking. <laughs> they had no idea. <laughs> and this also tells you just how hedonistic and powerful magic was back then. To me, it's like they all got high and like did a bump and were like, okay, okay, uh, in Kindu. Uh, so where's the book? And Kindu's like, I got it off my mom's cooking shelf. I don't know. I think this is the demon of the hearth fire that we're summoning. He's really good at bacon rolls on time. I don't really know if that... Well, that's one of them. Let's do it. Throw the flower on the vampire. And a, and a cloud of flour went over him, right? And so I guess the, the spirit's now in the room. So on and so forth. And they didn't know how dangerous they were. They didn't know how weak they were. But they knew this much. Seven spirits in the body is going to create something awesome. And so they do it. But when they invoked it, how these invocations worked, they indicated it was emotional-based 100%. And so because the the hate the room had for this diabolizing vampire, diabolizer for free, dude, they were able to distill this power in the spirits, and the spirits really grooved to it. And they said, absolutely, we're going to kill this guy. We're so going to kill this guy. And because this hate was there, they stood back and were like, okay, he's now set, and let's see what happens. And, and it did. And when the guy diabolized him, what the spirits did the Edimu is that all seven of them ripped into his body from an entry point and devoured his flesh, bone, and spirit. Ate them all whole, but then they also quickly regurgitated his uh, a form that they now had around him. He's gone completely, but his power is theirs. His body is theirs. What he was is theirs. They know what he was, but they don't care. And it's seven spirits, but due to the nature of the curse... These Edema wanted to kill all vampires. Hmm. These people were, they, they were dumb. They didn't think of going, okay, just this dude, but that's it, Edema. They did not. They were like, get yeah. rid of this piece of shit. And like, okay, well, what did the spirit think? You didn't give it any ban. You didn't tell it where the limit was. Just please get rid of it. They also didn't think the spirits would know of a way to create more of them. And of course they did. That's what made them so fascinating to me. So the spirit knows how to self-replicate. And what it does is the same thing. Actually, what it does is even worse. Once an Edimu is an Edimu, it runs around and basically shakes its tail feather at the operas. Which is how they got this guy. Like, granted, he might have been in prison for the first time and got him going around. But to make sure this guy wanted to diabolize him, they can look and see that you've done diabolery before. And once they see that, they throw out a charm. It's like a presence. It's like a Deva's best night out hitting somebody who's hard up. Right? They can't resist it. And then you want to diabolize them. You come to do it. And this is the self-replication because then they rip into you. And one of them enters your body. But if so much as one Edimu survives the process to enter you, it automatically splits and summons seven more. 
or six more into the body being seven. There is always seven. And it walks around. And these things are frightening on a lot of levels. Because not only are they a walking Diablery trap, but also uh, they're able to seduce and draw you into them. They're also able to alter their form, whatever they like. They could use their flesh as whips, weapons, and binding tools and implements. So you're not getting away from it. And it very much enraptures the mind in sort of a flesh monster that was roving through Babylon, but for the night gods. It doesn't say that it wouldn't kill mortals. It simply says they're preferred. They wanted vampires. That's what they were out to get. But then when they describe their form, it's creepy. Because they look like their victim 100%. That's one of the minor powers it can do, is look exactly like who they took. However, because there's seven different spirits, each body part does it distinctly something different to kind of give tip the hand of what it might be, because it can't quite keep the flesh form. So it constantly, exactly, like it might have a lizard lizard eyes at one moment, but then you might catch that it has like a spider appendage in a second later. And then so far, it's, you know, basically molding from one to the other, morphing here and there until it realizes there's a vampire in a room. And then it looks exactly like its victim to do the process all over again. And so that's, that's the Edimu and that's Babylon. But what does it tell you? I think this book sets up perfectly that in these eras, it does give you an idea of the night society by looking at the bloodlines, but you got to be willing to say, like any good storyteller, you got to be able to look at this and say, am I going to piece this together for my chronicle, what I'm going to run in this era? For the pod, Mike, you had made the comment that eh, it sets you up to do it. You could take this as gospel truth and canon and run with it. You certainly can. You can also say what I said at the beginning and like, really, this is kind <clears> of <throat> right. There, we, and we need more info. There's more that we could have done. Mm-hmm. And what had you. And there's, we could extrapolate. But the uh, the point is, there is good stuff in here. That's that's what I think. And I like the Babylon uh, section the best because I think it's the most bold. But at the same time, um, I kind of agree with you, DJ, where you saw the Nagaraja. I saw, like, yet another rendition of, like, we couldn't quite pull over another assassin cult without it seeming like what we did back in the day. But here's a version of it that could be cool if you tried to hit it at a different level. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, I agree. I got... I don't have strong arguments against the things that are wrong with this book, but it was fun. Whoa, wrong? (laughs) Um, I'm not saying wrong. I, folks, I'm opinionated. Look the definition, we all are. I'm just literally by definition that, because I have no problem. I don't care what you think those who are listening. I really don't. I care that we can have a discussion. I care that you can tell me your thoughts, whether I like them or not. I will hear them because you hear my thoughts. And I hope that I do like your thoughts or that we share and meet in the middle And it because it could change me. I can't tell you how many times we've talked in these pods, fellas. And it's the book starts off, I wasn't a fan, but then you hear a different perception. You go, you know what? Yeah, I kind of like it, actually. Mm, I didn't think about that. Yeah. But that's that's the when you're honest and able to say, yes, I have opinions and I'm not afraid of them and I'm willing to share them because I'm willing to learn from them. That's what we're about. So wrong? Yeah. Wrong means you know the right way and to have a right way means that that is the correct way and only the, that way is the way to be. That can't ever be said about fiction. Mm, fair enough. Yeah. Oh, I did have, agree a, to that. I did have a, a question for you guys. Um, and this is purely out of my ignorance, but I think other people might have the same question. Was there anything other than purely like deadlines? Or if we want to be cynical, 
the desire to make a few more dollars that kept this and ancient mysteries from being the same book. Yeah, I think you, uh, there, there's a lot that goes to this. The size. Think of how massive. A lot of the Requiem books had this problem where they were, they were just, they're just large books up to this point mm. where it's a long time to get through it. And the problem, here's, here's the rule of thumb. To hold the attention of your audience, you have to be succinct. Quickly, I'm terrible at this, but I don't care. I'm entertaining. So you can do that, right? I could keep doing it in circles coming back and just because we all are when we're when we're talking and just relaxing. But for right, right, business, right. the per- perception is always we new product coming out. Here's the commercial. We have 30 seconds to capture your imagination. Really, less than that. We got to have flash. We got to have great sound, and we got to have some reason that something that shows you more than tells you what this product is about to get you hooked. And that's not different in anything you buy, in particular for entertainment. So when you look at this book, and the front cover has some wild vampire and some crazy headdress ritualistic thing, and it's titled "Ancient Bloodlines." Well, why is it called "Ancient Bloodlines"? What does that tell you before you even flip it over to see what the content is? It's vampires, it's bloodlines, it's Requiem, and okay, this probably tells me about some ancient bloodlines. We, we might get into some Elder stuff. All right, great. Well, if we just left it back with Ancient Mysteries, what would we call that book? The Elder Book? Requiem Elders? Would we call it Ancient Something? The Timeless Thoughts or Time Rules or whatever it is? And, and where that's a minor inconvenience because there's creative people smarter than me that can come up with that. Now this is a big, honking, huge, thick book that folks are going through and you're going to get people. Cause when we went through the other stuff, it was like, what were the points they wanted to hit? Well, they really wanted to help guys like me see DJ's point of view and going the t- the age thing and, and forgetting memory doesn't have to be bad. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want with it, but let us show you what we intended and then make your judgment. Would you ever use this stuff? And you know, truth and point on that pod. I absolutely, I said that, that I could see where we would do uh, time and pieces and everything else. Uh, of how we would go through and slowly roll out some of that stuff. And it made sense. So they had their day in court. But the book is limited. There's only so many dollars you want to invest in a book before you want to say the fans will buy this. Because the price goes up the more that it costs you to actually put ink to paper. Think of it that way. Mm-hmm. So, all right, we know that the bar, the amount of money is at this point. So we know we got to at least chop it down to be that far. Well, do we only put in one or two bloodlines and tell them, hey, this is what we had in mind? Well, no. We already had a team of people worked on this book and all this content. There's enough to be a book on its own. And they said, well, just make it a book on its own. What do you mean? Let them know there's a companion piece to this book. And they did. And that this will come out and here it is. And that, that's my opinion how it happened. You just ran out of space and then it justified a book on its own. Right. Agreed as well because it adds a nuance in particular to these bloodlines, which of course they go full pages to begin with. But yeah. All right. Any other closing comments on this book, I believe? Nah. Nah. I recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> I I'll say at least on my end it was eye opening because I did I did exactly what Bob did. Bob had it for Fog of Ages, Bob sold me on the bloodlines here because I was a little bit lukewarm regarding how I was entering the bloodlines and as I was reading it, um they do have their day in the sun. Uh, because it's all read within context, and you have to read it within context, and with a subjective voice. I will probably say that's the biggest one, because if you read it objectively, like most people do up to including myself, you're like, eh, you kind of feel a little bit lukewarm, but when you start getting into it, folks, it, it does have value in it. Um, 
But yeah, I just want to say thank you, Bob and Mike, for joining us this week regarding Ancient Bloodlines. Next book that we'll be reading is going to be, if we're still running down the Requiem route, unless something comes out that we didn't anticipate here, uh, should be Night Horror's Wicked Dead, I believe. Um, so that'll be the next Requiem book we have. But I believe Werewolf is the week coming up. Hey, you know, there is something I thought of. Which on the side, Go ahead. we've got a few minutes left, right? Shoot. What did you think of the Egyptian bloodline that has no memory? So that was that was the bloodline I was referring to in the beginning when I said you don't necessarily have to play one of these ancient bloodlines as an elder. Like, you can be an elder but not have to have 3,000 years of memory. Um, with that being said, I guess it also felt like an empty cup. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with them. Uh, it's, it is as if... It would be the same if my character were a neonate who was just deranged and thought he was 3,000 years old because there's no material difference to me. Um, but, you know, I, I dig it as a as a legit canon excuse to play a guy from Egypt in 1995 or whatever. I, I didn't hate it. Huh. I uh, I feel the same as Mike, but I also feel like this is their way of letting you know if you're going to start playing an elder, but you don't know you're playing an elder and you're going to do it in the modern times, and here's like all training wheels, right? It's not just the back two that you have on the back of the bicycle, but we're going to put another two in the front of the bicycle as well, just so they could start role playing it out. And at one point or another, either you or your storyteller might help you out to flesh out more about why you don't remember any of the stuff that you know. Yeah, fair point. It's. It's it's interesting because I'm I'm trying to figure out there's got to be people who like to justify this creation that were running around saying I could play an elder that wakes up and I have this power but I don't know and I have an instinct to know how to use it because that's the beast the beast will do what it needs to do when it needs to do it why wipe the memory or why make it to where I have a hunger to find out who I was no matter what and I sat there and said to myself I couldn't make that make sense to me. If I'm immortal, and I was made in a time where I knew that when I go to sleep this time, I'm going to wake up and it's a new life. Think about that a second. Is that a feature or a flaw? Uh, I guess it depends on who you are, right? Well, you don't remember who you are. It depends on who you wake up as. <laughs> this is my point. If I wake up as a vampire and I'm like, hmm, did I forget I was a vampire and walk into the sun? No, that's done. I have to remember yeah. something of what I am. But this is also, th th this becomes existential or poorly thought of. And I'm on the fence of it. I'm not, I haven't decided what it is. Because once you forget what and who you are, what are you? Right? Why wouldn't you focus on just your instincts to feed? Right? That this this is all you know. I'm hungry. I feed on blood. I'm in a world I don't understand, and slowly I'll figure it out. But I'm figuring out. For, I must have been a bad person, because this is look what I do. Right. I'm a monster. I'm not a human being, because I feed on blood and I hunt these people. I could taste their lives and their passions and their blood, but those aren't my own, and I very much know what it is. It would help me lose my humanity and become more of a thing, more of a real monster, a real creature. So why is it that there's this nuance where they're putting in where it's like, no, I wake up going, I wonder who I am now. I hope that there's a story that tells me who I am. Can you please tell me who I am so I can fit in the world better? 
<laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I don't think that that actually represents what would really happen. You know, to put it in perspective, if you could take Putin, right, just as he is, and Putin, we tell him, ah, Mr. Putin, war in Ukraine, all the horrible things you've done, blah, 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 and the horrible things you would do. Um, here's this pill. Take it, and you'll you'll die. You'll be gone. However, when you wake up, you won't know who you are, and you'll get to redefine who you are. Do you think he would go to be the same guy he was back in the day? Or do you think the clean slate and how and where he wakes up will now dictate who he is? New environment for the baby, so to speak, that he's waking up and being. Right. Um, it feels like a, a, a commentary, right, on, on their condition to me. Or maybe it's an individual's condition and not the whole plan's condition. I'm not sure. But I think that it is going to be on a case-by-case basis. Either you can't let go of what's behind you and you feel like, I have to figure out what happened, how was I this or that, or why was I powerful enough to allow myself to be as old as I must be, but having all these questions and yet still holding on to pieces of my mind, or you got enough peace and, and self-confidence to look forward and say, well, seems a, a new world has been laid on my plate. Um, I'm fine with that duality. It, it just feels like I need to pour some present day character concept into it to make it stick, make it playable. To me, I think the most refreshing thought is if that bloodline just, I think I, that's the one I don't agree with. It's the one I don't think should even be there. You know why? Because as well, this also gets done in Mummy the Curse Second Edition. Right, or even Mummy the Curse. What the whole point is, you wake up without knowing anything with great power, but as time goes on, you start learning about yourself, then your power diminishes because you're starting to do that. I think that fits more along the line of what was, I wake up without memory? Cool. Mummy works out great for it. And you're right, I think that's why in here it feels a little bit lukewarm. Like, I agree with you, Bob. I feel like, why else, if not to say, this is a vehicle tool for you and your storyteller or for your storyteller to do the heavy lifting and tell you the story about who you think you were or weren't and not what you are now. Because if you remembered who you were as a player, you're right. You would have done everything different if you had all that power. But now that you don't, here's your vehicle. But that's a thing. It's, it's that thing. And another way to look at it, and this is a simple, quick way, is that what is a vampire without their tragic past, without their mm. history? What is the point of being immortal without history? And that's, that's really my whole problem with it, to divorce yourself from it and to have an excuse to say, oh, my memory isn't what it was. Or I just completely forgot. Um, great. That's another game, right? That fundamentally breaks the point of playing a vampire when you ruin, when you carve out the immortality they're supposed to have, and that tragedy makes them who they are. And in fact, if we go back to the base requiem book that pretty much highlighted the fact that we feel our humanity better than we did in Masquerade, and we tie together these points of how to portray it and to feel it and touchstone and all that stuff, it ruins everything. When you're just up, I forgot about all that. I guess I'm new now. It's like, yeah, just make a new character. Mm. That's what keeps entering my head. You woke up, just make a new character. Why? Because Mm. then it's the same difference, right? You just, you know, don't have the power. Right. But I want the power. Okay. (laughs) And 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 that's a different different conversation. What do you do to the player who wants the Methuselah powers but doesn't want to have to write the history? (laughs) I'll tell you what you do. You tell them to buy that, uh, what is that called? Uh, Bloodlines. It's like team team deathmatch now. Blood Hunt. Court, which Blood Hunt. I'm going to play. Blood Hunt. 
you play Blood Hunt and you get good with like Bruja punching people. That's uh, <laughs> play that game where it's worthwhile for it. But uh, no, thank you for going around me for a few minutes, DJ. I appreciate Mike. Um, I was just, I was curious. Yeah, all good. That'll make people talk about it too. But yes, once again, we thank you, folks. If you have anything, reach out to Discord and other channels. But once again, we thank you for your time. Catch you next time. Later. Peace. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and want to support us, please share it with others or leave a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.